you know, one of the things I'm pretty sure now is that it would be very difficult to negotiate the convention today, even among the OECD countries, because the world is much more competitive than it was 25 years ago. The voice you just heard is that of Nicola Bonucci, who is about to take you behind the scenes of the creation of the OECD Convention Against Bribery. I first met Nicola at a workshop entitled Can Science Enhance Ethics in Society? It was organized in 2016 by Charles Schalvi and Theo Offermann at the University of Amsterdam. Nicola was very interested in the most recent findings in behavioral science and how they might be practically applicable. Now, for me, as a postdoc, just starting to work with Charles Chalvi on the collaborative roots of corruption, it was really inspiring to see that the research we do can actually have an impact in the society. So I was very excited to hear that Matthew Stevenson had a chance to interview Nicola for our podcast. So without further ado, here's the interview. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and on today's episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Nicola Bonucci, who is uh, recently uh, retired from his position at the OECD. Uh, Nicola worked as the OECD's uh, director for legal affairs. He uh, was also the head of the OECD's delegation to the G20 anti-corruption working group. He has worked extensively in a variety of capacities on the OECD's work with respect to uh, fighting corruption around the world. And I'm just delighted to be able to speak to him on today's episode. So, Nicola, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. Very nice to be here. Maybe you can start out by uh, telling our listeners a little bit more about your own background, how you came uh, to be working at the OECD, and maybe also how you came to be working so extensively on anti-corruption issues within your broader portfolio at the OECD. Yeah, uh, so my background is uh, my legal education is on public international law. And uh, when I was studying, uh, I, I was considering two possible careers, either foreign affairs or international organization. I decided to go for international organizations And I started to work for five years at the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, FAO in Rome, where I met my wife, who's French. So um, basically, the reason why I moved the OECD, to the OECD had nothing to do with the OECD itself, but had a lot to do with the fact that I wanted to join my wife, who was French and living in Paris. But it was, it proved to be, and I always tell her, it proved to be the best professional decision I took in my life. So I joined the OECD in 1993, and I was rather junior still at the time. And this was the time in which there was an ad hoc group uh, working on what were called at the time illicit payments. The, the word bribery and corruption were taboo. They couldn't be used still. And this group was a group headed by a young professor of uh, law, Swiss, His name is Mark Pitt, probably well known to all your listeners. And the group was there to reflect uh, on what the OECD could be doing in this area. So the then general counsel asked me to assist him. He was the secretary of the group. 
And so I started to work on, on this, in fact, before the convention existed. Uh, I started to, to, to work, albeit at the junior level, in 1993-1994. Then the adult group became a working group on bribery, which is still uh, existing. Uh, the group adopted the first two recommendations, one in 1994, one in 1996. And as you know, the recommendation of 1996 included an annex, which had the elements of what could be a convention. And the convention was negotiated in a fairly rapid uh, time frame, by the way, in less than one year. The convention was uh, adopted in Paris in 1997 and then uh, entered into force in 1999. And when the convention enters into force, naturally, uh, the convention provides for uh, a monitoring mechanism. And the OECD secretariat was really to be built. You know, the anti-corruption division that we know now, which has 25 people, there were not 25 people at the time. So the part of the OECD which was following the convention asked me to basically get involved a lot with them. I was almost seconded to them. So I started to work a lot uh, on the, the monitoring the convention, the, the implementation, the phase one, the phase two. And I've been following the convention since, you know, as I said, since inception. And because of that, then I became a sort of re reference point of anti-corruption issues more at large at the OECD. That's why I was then asked to chair the OECD working, um, the OECD delegation at, uh, at the G20 Anti-Corruption Working Group, which I did with great pleasure for five years, and also representing the OECD in various international events, conferences, in which we also met and, and worked together. So I, I've been really uh, looking at this area of work since almost 25 years now. And basically, when, when, you know, when I decided to leave the OECD, I had a a wonderful offer to continue to work on this. But from the private practice point of view, I joined Paul Hastings, where I am a partner, and I'm dealing now with anti-corruption and bribery issues from a different angle, which is very enlightening. So I want to ask you uh, about what things that are going on right now, the contemporary issues that are facing the OECD, as well as I hope some of your work now that you're on the private sector side. But since you were, as the saying goes, present at the creation I would love to ask you a little bit more about the process for negotiating and bringing into being the OECD anti-bribery convention in the first place, because as I'm sure you know, because you were there, there was a lot of skepticism at the time about whether anything like this would happen. As you well know, the United States enacted its Foreign Corrupt Practices Act back in 1977 as part of the amendments to that statute that occurred a decade or so later, the United States was basically declared that the State Department and the administration should try to negotiate a multilateral agreement. But a lot of people uh, inside and outside the United States were skeptical that this was going to happen. As you say, back in the early to mid-1990s, even saying corruption or bribery in many international organizations was considered taboo. At least formally, many European countries would still allow you to deduct your foreign bribes uh, from your taxes. Not clear whether that actually ever happened that much, but people like to point out that as a formal legal matter, it could. And that some of the other major OECD economies, including France and Germany and so forth, had not previously expressed a lot of receptiveness to the, the idea that the US was pushing that there should be a multilateral agreement. So I'm really interested to get your perspective on how it came to be 
that this instrument was not only negotiated, but as you point out, negotiated actually pretty rapidly in the mid-1990s and, and came into force. So what were the factors that you think contributed to what from the outside looks like a pretty rapid shift in the international attitude on this from one that's like, hey, US, if you wanna do this, that's fine, but you're going it alone, to one where there was an agreement among uh, what at least at the time were all or almost all of the major world economies that paying foreign bribes ought to be criminalized. Yeah, no, that, that is indeed a super question. And it's something that has been uh, rarely written about, in fact, and the dynamic of the negotiations. And, and for a few good reasons, is that this was a negotiation carried out in an organization which is not even used to negotiate treaties. You know, the OECD hardly ever uh, negotiated an international treaty. And on an area, criminal law, which is even almost at the verge of the competence of the OECD. So I think you pointed out some of the, the point to, to remember. So first, as part of the 1988 amendments to the FCPA, there was indeed this mandate given to the executive to basically multilateralize the, the, the FCPA. And as you know, there were even attempts to basically put the debate in the hands of the United Nations at the time. The attempt was short-lived uh, because both the European countries and the uh, developing countries didn't want at all to, to have a discussion on that at the UN. And what I don't really know is who in the US administration had the idea that maybe the OECD was displaced. I think retrospectively, whomever he, he, he or she was, credit should be given to him or her because this made, in fact, a lot of sense. But And this also had a, an impact on on the negotiation, uh, you know, negotiating at, and at the time there were even less members than there are now at the OECD, negotiating in a small group of members versus uh, universal negotiation, negotiating in an organization which has a better understanding of the economic impact of corruption, which was as much a consideration than any ethical and moral impact. And, you know, one of the issues at stake was fair competition. One of the reasons why the U.S. wanted to multilateralize the FCPA was because it was putting the U.S. companies in a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the Europeans. One, These are, were concepts which were very familiar to the OECD, uh, much less so in the United Nations context. But when you say that it was fast, it was fast. When you look at the time frame between the adoption of the 1996 recommendation with the annex and the negotiation of the convention. But as I said, in fact, the group was established pretty much after the 1988 amendments. So the group negotiated for five, six years. And this is typical also of the OECD way of developing norms and instruments. There are a lot of technical discussions in which at the level of experts, we start to put the evidence together and we start to see on what we agree and what we don't agree. And the discussion then had its own dynamic. But I have to say that what has accelerated the discussion and what made the, the adoption of the convention possible was that in those early mid-1990s, you had the big scandal of ELF in France 
which also had an impact in Germany because there were money going to the CDU, CSU, then this became the coal scandal. So the two key players that you mentioned, the French and Germans, who were very skeptical, not to say resistant to anything, suddenly they were in a very weak position because of domestic scandals related to bribery, even though it, maybe it was not transnational bribery, even though one could say it was, in a sense, but related to bribery, and they had to, to give something to their own public opinion. What is rarely said is that the United States uh, at the time, and this was the Clinton administration, wasn't necessarily pushing for a convention. What they wanted was a strong OECD recommendation. And this was the original one in 1994 that then was reinforced in 1996. In 1996, as I said, these were really the years of the scandal that I mentioned. The shift to the convention was, in fact, because of a joint French-German paper, which basically said, listen, you know, we are ready to consider introducing foreign bribery as an offense in our criminal code, but we will never be able to convince our parliament to do that through an OECD recommendation, which is not legally binding. We need a convention. If we want to go to parliament and basically put the issue to our constituency and say, we need to, to do it, we need a convention. And in fact, the US was a bit resistant on that notion because they were afraid of its own Congress, because they were afraid that a convention could generate discussion because it has to be ratified, you know, how difficult it is to ratify international treaty. Possibly the FCPA would have to be amended, which in fact it was in 1998. So they were not so enthusiastic about the, the, the convention. So that, that explains, in my view, for, from a more conjunctural point of view, why this dynamic start, started because, uh, as I said, of what happened in Europe. But I think it was also the beginning of, it was the end of the Berlin Wall. It was an area in which there was a, an atmosphere of Western democracy have won. Uh, we are now, you know, we basically we can lift our guards. We can we can be as open as transparent uh, as possible. And you know, one of the things I'm pretty sure now is that it would be impossible or very difficult to negotiate the convention today, even among the OECD countries, because the world is much more competitive than it was or it was felt to be 25 years ago. So in some sense, you benefited from good timing. Although, exactly. as you say, you were also working on this for seven years beforehand. They say fortune favors the prepared. So maybe it was good preparation and then a window of opportunity. And then we get this convention. And I was mentioning before, there are a lot of people who are skeptical that there would ever be a convention. Even after there was a convention, as you also well know, a lot of people were skeptical about whether it would make much of a difference, right? There's a generic skepticism of international agreements, especially ones that don't have built into them what you might call hard sanctions, economic sanctions or so forth. You referred before to the OECD Convention's monitoring and review mechanism, which is its principal enforcement apparatus. It, uh, it doesn't, to the best of my knowledge, have the uh, ability to authorize or impose any other kind of sanction. I suppose in extreme cases, a uh, state party could be kicked out of the convention, but, but principally it's the monitoring mechanism. 
And um, I'm not an expert on this. I haven't done or read any rigorous studies, but my subjective impression is that the OECD convention and its monitoring mechanism have been substantially more effective than a lot of the skeptics predicted at the time. And I will confess, I was too young in the early 90s to be really paying attention to this, but if you'd asked me then, I might have been one of the skeptics and wouldn't think this would have had that much of an impact on countries that were not otherwise inclined to take foreign bribery seriously. So I guess two related questions here. First, do you share my outsider's impression that, in fact, the OECD convention has been not a cure-all, but, but quite successful in raising the bar and improving member countries' performance in criminalizing and enforcing the criminalizations of foreign bribery? And if the answer to that question is some version of yes, what do you think explains the relative effectiveness of the OECD anti-bribery convention, especially when compared to other anti-corruption instruments or other conventions in other areas that maybe have not been as effective in getting countries to live up to the commitments that they've made? No, to, so first, Matthew, uh, yes, I, I definitely agree with you. The convention has been incredibly successful and the monitoring of the convention has been, as a mechanism, has been incredibly successful in aligning the legislation and amending the legislation or even forcing countries to enact new legislation. UK Bribery Act is a perfect example. You know, the UK Bribery Act was adopted because because of the OECD convention and because of the OECD pressure uh, on the UK following the uh, the suspension of the BIA investigation. But even the Loi Sapendeux, the French legislation, came about because there were very negative reports of the OECD. And if you look at the reason why, the, the you know, when you look at the official documents that were presented to the General Assembly, uh, the assembly in the parliament in, in, in France, they specifically raise the reference to the convention. So in terms of adoption of the legislation, changing of the legislation, it more than I expected myself. In terms of enforcement, it's more difficult because naturally you're entering in the core of the nuclear <laughs> power, but it has had a lot of effect also in terms of enforcement. And, you know, it's more difficult to appreciate, but, but it has had a lot of effect. So by and large, yes, this is a mechanism which has proved to be strong, robust, and which was not taken hostage by political games, which was my main concern. What, so the reasons, uh, I, I've been giving a lot of thought about that myself. And, and, you know, there are a number of reasons, some of them obvious or, or, or let's say logical and, and others that are have more to do with behavioral uh, nature and you know and the dynamics of, of multilateral settings so the first one is that this was something which was very uh, used in the OECD in the monitoring and in you know of our work uh, the peer reviews the peer pressures these are OECD methodologies uh, used in other areas. It was the first time that it was used in an area in which you had a legally binding instrument. Uh, so it was the combination of this soft power and the legally binding that was a bit new, but those methodologies are very well known at OECD, less well known outside. Second point is, as indicated, in a, in a restricted group of countries, you can handle these in a more efficient way than if you have to monitor 
190 countries. And also the convention itself has a much narrower scope than you know, the United Nations Convention Against Corruption or even the Organization of American States or even the Council of Europe conventions. You know, we're only looking at one issue, which is foreign bribery in cross-border transaction. So in a sense, you can go much more in depth and, and in the deep dive than, than having to monitor the implementation of a huge convention like the UN. But there was also some other elements. And first, there was a strong chair, independent strong chair. Mark Pitt, the famous professor that we were talking about, was then to become the first chair of the Working Group on Bribery. And I think one of the credits that has to be given to, to all the members is to have accepted to have an independent chair uh, uh, at the head of this very delicate body, which is a tradition that has been perpetuated because Drago Kos, who is now the chair, is also an independent chair and very strong chair. So Mark was not a public official. He was not paid by you know, the Swiss government. He was doing that partially with money coming from voluntary contributions. And, and he was not representing Switzerland. He was representing himself. Second, when you enter into this kind of mutual evaluations, I think the tone comes from the very first meetings. Either you create a vicious circle or you create a, a virtuous circle. What happened is that when we started to evaluate the countries, we put as a non-written rule the fact that the evaluators, as you know, countries are evaluated by a team composed of the secretariat and then what we call lead examiners. And then the report is presented to the plenary. The lead examiners for example, for a G7, where always another G7 country and a non-G7 country, were always a country with similar legal tradition and a country with a completely different tradition. So this always balanced and, and avoided the, I scratch your back, you scratch my back, and then we are all friends. And then we, we, <laughs> we hide this because, you know, for example, if we were in evaluation of uh, Denmark, and Sweden and Portugal were to be the evaluator. Sweden would have been probably the good cop, and Portugal almost the physiologically the bad cop because it was less close to the country evaluated. And the third reason is the secretariat. And again, credit has to be given to the countries that they accepted that the secretariat would be playing an instrumental role. The secretariat is absolutely vital because it is the secretary who ensures that there is equality of treatment. It is the secretary who will say to the lead examiners, we are facing now this issue. This is how it has been dealt with in the case of country X, country Y, country Z. So even if the lead examiners now were to be nice or wanted to be nice, now that we have established the corpus of jurisprudence that we have established, it's very, very difficult. So. In a sense, all this make it that the level of evaluation, instead of going down, has systematically going up. And if you look at the report today, I think they are much better, much more focused than the first report because everybody has learned also how to evaluate another country and has, everybody has a, a something, you know, much more knowledge and experience than, than 10 or 20 years ago. 
That's so fascinating. And it's really helpful to get a sense of how the, the combination of institutional structures, but also individual personalities combined to create a structure that's generally, again, my impression, and it seems like you agree with this, is quite effective. I want to make sure in asking my next question that I, I acknowledge again all of the successes of the OECD convention and the hard work that you and your colleagues put into making it a success. But of course, we can always learn from past experiences about things that maybe didn't go as well or where challenges uh, remain. So again, in the context of a convention that's generally exceeded your expectations and those of outsiders like me in terms of how effective it's been, where do you see, based on your many years of experience um, closely involved, where do you see um, weaknesses? Where do you think the OEC convention has not yet lived up to its promise or potential? What concerns do you have about the way the convention has operated or might operate in the future? What changes or reforms might you want to see to make this system work better? No, you're you absolutely right. Uh, you know, there is not such thing like any perfection in, in the world. So first, I think it's fair to say that, as I said before, while we had a rate of success, which is maybe not 100%, but really close to 90% in terms of uh, adoption changing and having legislation which are state-of-the-art legislation, when you look at the reality on the ground in terms of investigation prosecutions, there is still an uneven level playing field. And, you know, if a country like Bulgaria or Iceland doesn't have many foreign bribery cases, I don't want to be offensive for any of those, those countries, but I'm not so much concerned because in terms of what they represent on in international trade, one can understand that there are maybe not many occasions in which this can happen. When you have very few cases in a country like Japan, when you know what Japan represents, uh, I think this is an issue. And, you know, the limit of the monitoring is that, as you pointed out, the OECD, uh, neither the Secretariat nor the Working Group on Bribery can investigate and prosecute on behalf of a country. This remains the prerogative of, of countries. What I think would need to be done in the future for, for my colleagues is to try to understand why in some countries there is this lagging behind in terms of investigation and prosecutions. And one cannot always assume that it's only a matter of non- political will. There might be countries in which there are other issues at stake. For example, in the Scandinavian countries, actually the problem is not so much investigation and prosecution. The problem is the, the threshold that the tribunals are putting in order to convince the tribunal that this was a bribery case. Uh, they seem to have a very high regard for, for presumption of innocence, which is naturally uh, uh, you know, legitimate, but at the same time, they seem to have sometimes a difficulty to understand how difficult it is to come with a smoking gun in a transnational bribery case. So I think there have been a couple of cases, uh, high-level profile cases, which unfortunately uh, were dropped at the level of the appeals court in Sweden. We, we know one uh, recently, and there were a couple of cases in, Nor in Norway also. So, so uh, you know, 
you cannot just say that countries are not investigating and prosecuting and they are in bad faith because it's more complicated than that. But this is point number one. Point number two, clearly in the mid-90s, when the negotiation of the convention took place, the OECD countries at the time were representing pretty much 90% of the trade export. They now represent barely 60%. You have big actors which arrived on the international arena, China, India, and others, you know, even, even countries like Malaysia, Thailand are, are important mid-level actors. We need to find ways for having those countries, if not joining the convention, at least uh, having foreign bribery legislation in place, which, you know, is not even the case in India as we speak, even though it is the case in China. And then more importantly, to implement such legislation. So this is the second gap. The third point is I have two regrets on what is missing in the convention. The first one is that we should have thought about the issue of asset recovery and we should have covered asset recovery in the convention. I know that there is asset recovery in the United Nations Convention Against Corruption, but I think to have had at least one article on asset recovery in the OECD convention would have given an incredible hook, in particular, if you link it to the monitoring mechanism, to be able to start to, because let's be very frank, the assets are mostly in the OECD countries and the recovery is mostly going to the non-OECD countries, would have been an excellent uh, tool to, to ask questions to the OECD countries. And at the same time, I think even though legally speaking, I can fully understand why, and in fact, there is a commentary even in the convention about that, why we decided not to have any provision on that, we should have uh, at least had a hook on the demand side, uh, on the passive bribery side. When you have, a, you, know, uh, you have a report which was issued two years ago by the OECD, I was still at the OECD at the time, which was looking at transnational bribery cases in which both countries were parties to the convention, so the supply side and the, and the demand side. And all, there were 55 cases of that sort in which the briber was sanctioned in one way or the other. And out of those 55 cases, only one out of five was the passive bribery sanction on the recipient side. And we're talking about parties to the convention. So I think this is something that possibly the working group on Bybrae will try to address now because they are revising the recommendation. And I know that there are some discussion around that, uh, at least partially. But, but I think it would have not been a, a good political signal if we would have covered also the passive side. That's so fascinating. And it just highlights this, I think, inescapable tension that those dealing with this, these kinds of conventions always face between the fact that on the one hand, as you said in response to one of my earlier questions about why the convention was successful, you emphasized its relatively uh, more restricted scope dealing with the foreign bribery issue and the relatively narrower set of members of the club, the OECD countries, were some of the factors that contributed to the convention's success at the same time when we discussed the convention's limitations or uh, failures to live up to its promise, 
those same factors cut in the other direction. The fact that it only deals with a fairly narrow uh, set of issues related to the supply side of foreign bribery and the fact that it only covers not just OECD countries because other countries can become members, but a more limited set of countries as opposed to all of the countries that have a substantial economic impact. And there's probably no way to get that balance exactly right. Um, but I think it just highlights this fascinating tension. I'd love to pursue that a little bit more, maybe focusing for now at least on the second of the points that you made about the fact that, well, maybe in the mid-1990s, if you get the OECD countries and maybe throw in a couple more, you've got 90% of global economic transactions. But today that's not the case. India, China, Russia, uh, a few other countries are global players. And then you get a bunch of countries outside of the OECD convention that maybe aren't global players in the sense that a, an India or a China is, but are certainly regional players that are doing a lot of cross-border trade and investment within their regions. And um, many of those countries are not part of the OECD convention. Some of them have observer status, um, but that doesn't give them a vote or subject them to the same kinds of review process. Some of them aren't even um, part of that. So a question that has come up that you and I have had the opportunity to discuss briefly, just informally when we've seen each other at workshops and so forth is, should there be a concerted effort to expand the membership of the OECD convention? Again, it doesn't include just OECD members. It is already expanded to admit many other countries that are not in the OECD. But should there be a concerted effort to try to bring into the convention as full members countries like India, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, uh, and others that may be significant economic players today, uh, where there are significant concerns that individuals or firms from those countries are paying bribes in other countries to secure a business advantage, but that are not currently subject to the strictures of the OECD convention and not subject to the monitoring mechanism. So as you know, there's a debate about this, I've written a little bit about it, but I, uh, my own thinking is maybe move back and forth on this, but I'd love your perspective on um, that issue. So the position of the OECD secretary, as, at least until December 2019, when I was still around, was very clear. Our goal as secretary was to have all the G20 joining the convention. As of today, out of the G20 countries, you have... Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, India, and China, which are not parties to the convention. Russia is part of the convention. But Saudi Arabia, just this year, because they had the presidency announced that they were interested and they, they want to join the working group on bribery first, and then maybe the convention. I think if the G20 is to lead by example, as it purports to be, clearly this should be a str the, the strongest signal. And this position uh, has been the one of the OECD secretary has been the one of most of the OECD countries, been the one of the United States, except that in the last few years, the United States was a bit more reluctant, in particular vis-a-vis -vis China. And, you know, I, and, and, and I think this is indeed a, a tricky question because one of the beauties of, of the mechanism and one of the reason why uh, this mechanism has worked is that, as I said, we managed to escape from political tensions. We managed to deal with highly political cases, like the Bureaucracy Aerospace investigation, uh, without entering into political tensions within the group and with the countries concerned, trying to remain as technical as possible. 
I think there is a genuine question about is this possible with China? Can we have a technical discussion decoupled from a political context? And I think, you know, I, I don't know the answer on that. But from a purely fair competition point of view, it is clear that you need to have the G20 countries uh, joining the convention. As well as, as you pointed out, as well as some, you know, mid-sized economic players who who play an important role. We have been very successful in opening uh, to Latin American countries because now with Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, uh, Costa Rica, and Peru, basically we have, and Chile, uh, we have most of the, the, the important players, at least in, in Latin America, in South America, and interesting to have Costa Rica and Central America. In Asia, we were not able to to do the same inroads, and I'm not even talking only about China, for a number of reasons. I don't know uh, if you ever realized that, but Asia is the only part of the world which doesn't have a regional convention against corruption. And it's not by accident. I don't believe in accidents <laughs> when, it, when you think about that. And, and you don't even have a real regional organizations like uh, the African Union or the Amer Organization of American State in Asia. You don't have such an Asian organization. The Asian Development Bank is a bank, but it's not a political organization. You have Asian. So it's, it's very difficult to tackle Asia as a continent. So you need to really go country by country. And, you know, sometimes we have been doing good inroads with some countries and then, uh, and then we stopped. I think this point that you're raising, I, I cannot agree more. And this could be maybe one of the high priorities of the new Secretary General. As you know, the, the current Secretary General is going to uh, leave the OECD in a couple of months. And in fact, in the, in the days, in the next few days, we will sh probably should know who the new Secretary General is. I think this should be one of the, the highest target is to enlarge uh, the, the membership of the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. Yeah, I have to say, as, as you know, I'm one of the people who's expressed some skepticism about enlargement, mostly because I would worry about um, watering down the convention or making it easier for countries to resist or suppress negative reports. Right, right now, I, I gather that when it comes to publishing the reports and the assessments, there, it's a consensus minus one process, which means that the country being subjected to critical scrutiny can't unilaterally block it. But if there were a faction of countries that were voting members of the convention, I would worry about the kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours dynamic that you described earlier. I can't help but think of the European Union with Poland and Hungary both being part of it. It actually becomes very difficult to exercise sanctions that the EU might otherwise be able to impose because they will have each other's back. But again, you raise it, I think, a, a, a valid uh, counter, which is that if the convention is going to continue to be successful and relevant, you eventually need to get these countries that are performing such an important economic role internationally inside to get them to level up. And I don't, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm. I guess I just, I, the, the talk of rapid enlargement makes me a little bit uh, nervous. I did want to ask you, I know we're, we're, we don't have that much time left and, and uh, I don't want to impose on you too much more further, but there were one or two other things I, I wanted to get your perspective about concerning the convention and, and its operation. One has to do with concerns about the politicization 
of anti-corruption enforcement. There's a there's a provision in the treaty. I think it's Article Five, if I'm remembering correctly, that mm-hmm. uh, prohibits member states from taking into account. I, I won't get the wording exactly right, but basically considerations of uh, political issues or national economic advantage when deciding whether or how to enforce the obligations under the convention. I know that concerns have been raised in the past about whether countries are uh, violating this requirement and what, if anything, the OECD convention, the working group, group on bribery, can do to address that problem, which is, of course, so delicate and potentially um, politically fraught. I know there are issues involving the UK. Uh, there are issues, I believe, involving, I think, maybe Turkey and Canada. Uh, in the United States, I don't think the issue was formally raised. And after the change of administration, it might not matter as much anymore. But as you well know, former President Trump uh, was very vocal about not being enthusiastic about FCPA enforcement actions because of the belief that they disadvantaged the U.S. economically. So can you talk a little bit specifically about Article 5 and concerns about improper political or economic considerations either leading to enforcement or non-enforcement, both are possibilities. And what, if anything, can be done about this? No, Article 5 is, you know, you asked me before, what were your regrets? Uh, and I mentioned a couple of those. On the other hand, I have to say that Article 5 is fantastic. Article 5 is unique to the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. You don't have the equivalent in all the other anti-corruption convention. And it is a very powerful tool because indeed uh, it states uh, by memory that investigation and prosecution shall not take into account diplomatic relation or, or the nationality of you know basically political and, and, and economic consideration because there are also the economic considerations which are very important. So you you mentioned the, 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 the case of the UK. This was the British aerospace case indeed in which there were discussion about Article 5 and we had similar discussion recently, actually, in the case of Canada vis-à-vis the SNC-Lavalin and, and, you know, the discussion and uh, what happened in Canada. In the case of the UK, there were both political and economic factors which were at stake. In the case of the SNC-Lavalin, was only uh, the possible protection of, of, uh, of a national company but we also had an interesting discussion, and I invite your auditors to, to go and, and read the report uh, which was issued and published uh, on the US recently in uh, last November, the phase four report, because there is a discussion on Article 5 vis-a-vis the, the China policy, in which you were saying, as you said, it's not that I don't enforce, is that I target a particular country. Now, in none of those cases, there was a firm and final conclusion of a breach of Article 5. And I think the beauty of Article 5 is that it exists, and that you can have a discussion based on that in the working group on Broadway. To be honest, I probably would not have said this publicly before leaving the OECD. I doubt that there will be ever a conclusion that the country breached Article 5 because this would open a Pandora box which would be huge, but I don't think you need that for actually Article 5 to be actionable. The very fact that the country has to convince the others that there were no uh, hidden motives, and the very fact that the others may not be convinced 
And the very fact that we can state this in a report, as we did for the UK, you know, you don't need to have a name and shame. The name and shame was already there, in a sense. You don't need to, to come to a, to a smoking gun conclusion. On the other hand, Article 5, is beauty is that it is seldom invoked and seldom used because, indeed, you're right. If there start to be a discussion on Article 5 in each and every evaluation, then, then I think the Article 5 itself would lose credibility and power. For the moment, it has proven to be an effective deterrent. It has an impact that we cannot evaluate on all the cases that could have been dropped if Article 5 did not exist. <laughs> but we know that there have been discussions about that. And in fact, you know, again, I'm not disclosing anything, but in the UK, there were a lot of discussion about Article 5 in between the ministries when the BIA case was discussed. So the very fact that it exists itself is an important tool, but it has to be used sparingly. So we're, we're almost out of time. And there's so much else I would like to ask you about uh, the OECD convention, your work there. But I feel like it would be remiss if I didn't pick up on the thread that you suggested very earlier in our conversation about your uh, the new phase of your career in private practice and how that has affected or how whether that has affected your perspective on these broader issues. And you know, I've had the opportunity in other contexts to speak to people who had long careers in, of service in governments or international institutions and then moved to the private sector. Occasionally, I've talked to people who have been private sector lawyers and eventually go to work for a government or national organization. And it's always fascinating to hear how one sees things differently when you're looking at it from a, a different angle. And so uh, could you maybe uh, just elaborate on that remark you made earlier in our conversation about how now that you're a, a, a partner in a private sector law firm dealing with many of the same issues that you worked on while you were with the OECD uh, and working on the convention anti-bribery issues there, what what you what you have in mind? How do things look different? Are there things that you see now that you kind of wish you'd, you'd thought about more when you were there? Um, and are there things that you uh, bring to private practice that gives you a perspective that maybe you wouldn't have had if you had stayed as a private sector lawyer working on these issues kind of from day one? No, I have to say, Matthew, that it is a fascinating experience. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to have this experience. Um, well, first, I, I'm lucky to be in a global law firm who is dealing with, you know, big companies, big issues. But it's interesting because I am also in, in the Paris office. And so I also have French clients. And I was advising uh, just a few days ago a small company, 100 people, consultant company, which is doing well, uh, which is you know performing well. Uh, they didn't have any anti-corruption policy, and you have a lot of people who are engineers and non-lawyers, uh, and you have to explain why it is important to have an anti-corruption policy. And I think one of the things that I'm learning is how difficult it is to convince the people that it is important to have an anti-corruption policy in place, in particular in small and medium enterprises, in which there are a lot of other issues. One of the things that also struck me, on the other hand, is the high level of sophistication of the big multinationals and how complex it is for a big multinational to even you know, trying to be the best pupil in town 
to comply with all the different regulations, guidance, laws, uh, conventions that exist. And again, you know, when you're dealing with anti-corruption like I was at, at the OECD, you are focusing on, on anti-corruption, period. But when you, when you are a GC in a major company, you're dealing also with responsible business conduct, business and human rights, money laundering, ESGs. And when you're in a compliance office, more and more, you're also dealing with all those issues. So this is, is an eye-opener for me. And I think one of the issues that international regulatory corporations should work at is to try to be as coherent as possible and, and improve the level of cooperation between international organizations so that we are really working together and not necessarily setting up our own standards, uh, which may generally by and large in, on the same, on, along the same line, but it may introduce a lot of confusion. The second uh, clear difference is that when I was at the OECD, I was working with and for governments. And now I'm working with and for companies. So it's it's a different, you know, also perception in terms of how you put your priorities. You know, the, the, the discussions with governments very often uh, is around principles. Uh, the discussion with companies is around, around effectiveness. <laughs> uh, more, much more pragmatic. On the other hand, I think I can bring, indeed, uh, I, I see this in a number of colleagues, that they have a very high technical knowledge of the provisions of the law and how it works, but they sometimes miss the big picture. I have the big picture. And, and I think to have the big picture, to have the kind of discussion that we just had, puts things in a different perspective also and, and, and allows you to to also better distinguish what, what is really relevant to what is, yes, is a nice to have or, or, or not an insignificant issue, but not a major one. And sometimes people are focusing too much on, you know, I'm always struck by the fact of how much time is spent on, on gift and hospitality in discussion with companies versus, you know, the big elephant in the room, which is, okay, how did you get this public procurement contract uh, in the first place? What was this commission, uh, the, this commission about? And you know, why did you need uh, five agents to do this? Instead of knowing if you have spent 40 euros or 40, 50 euros for a lunch with X, Y, or Z. Great. That's so, so fascinating. Thank you for sharing your big picture perspective with me and for, with our listeners today. It's been really, really useful to, to hear about how uh, these issues play out in the real world and in particular how the OECD convention has developed and uh, evolved to try to better and more effectively address this uh, really important issue. So thank you for sharing uh, your time with me and with us today. Again, uh, my name is Matthew Stevenson, and my guest today has been Nicola Bonucci, currently a partner at, in the Paris office of Paul Hastings, the, the global law firm, formerly the director of legal affairs at the OECD and the head of the OECD's delegation to the G20's anti-corruption working group. Nicola, thank you again very much for your time and insights. Thank you, Matthew. It was a pleasure. And that's it. Another episode of Kickback. 
the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. And if you like what we do, you can leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at KickbackGAP. Kickback is a collaboration between the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Anti-Corruption Blog. It is produced by Matthew Stevenson, Christopher Starke, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Niels Kubis. We hope you enjoy the show.